hello, everybody, and welcome back to another very, very creepy episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. I'm your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. And, well, it wouldn't be the Midnight Mass podcast without my co-host. And he's here to party. Michael knows I am crawling out of my grave with excitement. Oh, my God. But to tell us what movie we're talking about, it's none other than Michael Varadi. Send more paramedics, Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> because you want some brains. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. Of course, we both love this movie. But as you have alluded to in other episodes, you really, really love this movie. And I, as your friend, know that you love it so much, you wear it everywhere. Peaches has <laughs> a, a jacket that features the emblem of this film. So if you are a ardent listener or you just read the description, you already know where we're going. But if you are ready to rave from the grave, well, boy, this is the week for you. That's right. We're celebrating 1985's Return of the Living Dead, starring James Karen, Don Calfa, Tom Matthews, Beverly Randolph, Linnea Quigley, Jewel Shepard, Miguel Nunez Jr., Brian Peck. Oh, my God. So many people. And directed by the one and only Dan O'Bannon, Peaches, The Time Has Come. We're going to rock out in the graveyard tonight. I am so excited because, as Michael said, this movie, in many ways, it wasn't just a movie for me. It it has become a style. It's the horror movie that best represents, you know, as a nerd who has to dress in what I would call like muggle clothes from time to time. Everyone knows me as this fantastic, beautiful, exotic, feminine, a larger than life persona who wears couture gowns and sequin for days. but, But the reality of it is I exist sometimes during the daylight hours and I have to wear muggle clothes. And and I dress like a total nerd. Well, I wear all sorts of movie paraphernalia, as you know, basically jeans and T-shirts. And the movie that I most am comfortable with as far as a style indicator is this film, Return of the Living Dead. The music, the fashions, the characters, the sense of humor, the tone, the puppetry, the magic, the special effects. Oh, my God, I could go on and on. This movie best sums up me in a lot of ways. It's true. And I'm so glad that we're doing this movie right now in our lineup because the last couple of weeks we did Killer Tomatoes and Dario Argento. And those were both things that very- Those are very Michael focused. Yes. And they very spoke to the DNA. Very selfish of you. Oh yeah. Like that's, that's, <laughs> it's just very Michael, me, a me-centric. When we have our business meeting, Michael just stomps his fist on the table and says, me, me, me. And I'm like, well, Michael, could I please uh, have a movie that's uh, near and dear to my heart at some point? Oh, wow. I was going to set you up for something (laughs) nice. But since you just lied about being demure. (laughs) That wasn't good acting. Please, Michael, please, may may we do a movie of my choosing? And that's what you get with a Peaches Christ show, quote Coco Peru. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, But no, what I was going to say is the last couple of weeks, you know, we talked about these things, this director, this film, that were very crucial to my foundational DNA in the world of cults. And this movie is so key to you. Yes. Uh, You know, when we talked about Night of the Living Dead, this movie came up because... 
for you, zombies and Return of the Living Dead are so synonymous, but also for all the reasons you said, this movie is more than just a zombie movie. It's sort of a punk rock cornerstone and everything about it was definitive aesthetic, I think, for a horror generation. The nice thing about this film is that I have loved it for so long that I have probably worn it in my middle of beyond jacket and t-shirts, which by the way, Love that company. I'm not sponsored by them, but they do send me free stuff, which is so, so lovely. And as Michael knows, I, I have a few of their jackets that they've sent me. I have a Reanimator one and a Motel Hell one. And I have a um, Return of the Living Dead one with a big patch of Tarman on the back. They're reversible jackets. They're the coolest jackets. They're sort of these, um, what do you call that, Michael? What What is that jacket? They're like um, satin. They're like Oh yeah, it's satin, a satin jacket. Right, but I actually turn it inside out and where the canvas side and both sides have um, things on them. Anyway, I have celebrated this movie through my apparel and memorabilia for so long without having seen it for a while. And I told you, I, I confessed to you that I was a little nervous to turn it back on because when we sometimes revisit these films, especially a film that is smack dab coming to you from the middle of the 80s, it is often that we are dodging offensive bullets. Sometimes the uh, F word is used liberally. You know, racial stereotypes and jokes are made. The sexism is gross and things are made light of, like, you know, um, sexual violence or sexual harassment. And what I loved about watching this movie is I was kind of like, please, please, please don't have any hidden nuggets or surprises for me. But you know what? It's perfect. This is a perfect movie and I just love it. And I was so relieved that there were no nasty surprises. This movie, not only does it hold up, Michael, I think I love it more today than I did when I was a kid because it's like a snapshot of something from my youth. Yeah, but that doesn't surprise me in the least because you say that you've been celebrating this movie through your apparel all these years. But the truth is, knowing you and knowing what you do, and something that we touch upon with our first guest a little bit, is you've been sort of celebrating this movie with your lifestyle as well. Because this movie is quite literally about a group of misfits who find each other and go to this place to just be, to be their wild, freakish, most outrageous, authentic selves. And there's a little bit of that DNA in the creation of the original Midnight Mass, in the creation of what you do. You know, the, at the midnight hour, let all the, the freaks and weirdos who are our chosen family gather and celebrate. Now, of course, in the movie, things take a terrible turn. And only at a few of your shows did things take a terrible turn. But otherwise, I think that ethos is there. That's debatable if you ask my audience. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, who am I to argue with you? You're completely right. And through this sort of long lasting love affair with this movie, because part of it is exactly what you're describing, which is that I've always fit in better with the misfits and the punks and the weirdos and the goths and the, you know, even in drag culture, even in, in a niche, I'm niche within a niche, right? Like drag yeah. was niche when I started, but then I even went more niche and decided to be a horror drag queen when no one was doing horror drag, you know? And yes, I invented that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. Did you want to, did you want to disagree? No, I didn't. I didn't want to disagree. <laughs> but what but what I will tell you is it, it kind of gave me a revelation, right? Because when you are part of the other, when you are part of a, a group that is outside the mainstream, we tend to see things and have a knowledge of things 
that the people that we see in the day-to-day maybe don't. And we talk a lot in this episode about how the idea of brains being the main point of consumption was introduced in Return of the Living Dead. And of course, that there's something visceral about that. The idea of just eating brains is gross. But I think on an intellectual level, in this movie that's all about punk rock, the idea that they decided brains were the focal point, you know, we have to eat brains to consume brains, makes it hurt a little less. There's something really kind of powerful to unpack there, I think, because really what it's saying is when you're a zombie, you just are shuffling along. You're part of it. You're not aware. So to like this consumption of the brain, it's like it makes it hurt less. You're getting that momentary knowledge of the world. So really, even when the kids arrive at the cemetery, they're still not the zombies. To them, the world is zombies. And then it quite literally becomes true. And I'm just having this like whole like layered symbolic epiphany right now. Well, I think that you and I actually through this whole celebration of this movie and and for the the, the listeners who've been um you know listening to our podcast you know that Michael and I we go deep we don't yeah. just interview one guest we usually interview two guests and then he and I talk about it together and we rewatch the movie and we do deep research on the internet and I watch I'll sit at home and watch YouTube videos and I watched all the fun behind the scenes videos and one thing with this deeper dive back into the world of return of the living dead is there's a few unique things that I think you and I are discovering. And what you just described is is one of them, which is that there was not this concept of zombies eating brains before this film. This was the movie that introduced this trope that now we accept as a zombie trope. So this movie deserves that credit. And I, I actually looked it up to see, is this yeah. the movie that, that created this whole scenario of zombies eating brains? And it is. And it's also the film that through that device, what you just sort of described as far as this yearning for consciousness or being sentient, it, it's the only film where zombies were able to think and make sense. There's a whole scene where a zombie woman's pathology is beautifully laid out for you where she describes exactly what you're saying and why they ate brains. It's actually kind of like bizarrely touching. We know she's a puppet and a fantastic special effect. Um, And we know that her lip sync is terrible, right? Like the, 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 (laughs) the, 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 the voice is sort of coming out of her throat, I guess. But it doesn't matter because it's so compelling. And she is such a fantastic character, much like Tarman, where, you know, through through the physicality of that character, they become fully realized. They're only on screen for mere minutes, but they become so iconic and so powerful, these rotting zombies from this film, that they too are their own, you know, characters. You know, I, I feel like we're really digging deep into this. Some may even say, we're going academic. <laughs> I thought you were going to make a grave joke because, you know, we're digging deep, but you didn't. But that's no, all right. I, I was actually setting us up for a guest. <laughs> ah, oh, perfect. Well, I had one more point that I wanted to make because, okay. um, I, and I have a lot uh, about a lot of thoughts. But the other thing, Michael, that you and I haven't discussed that I've been thinking about is this is one of those rare horror movies. There's something very smartly built into horror movies where often we learn that the real horror, the real monster is fellow human, you know? Yeah. Um, and that is a theme that we see play out in horror movies over and over and over again. And what I really love about Return of the Living Dead is you've got this giant cast of characters and they're all in many ways likable. 
They don't turn on each other. They yell at each other. They have arguments. They're rude to each other. But there's something about the way this movie presents them and it plays it all out. They're all given a fair shot and they're all likable people. Well, and let's take a moment to appreciate the fact also that this movie is one of the few movies centered around teens that shows intergenerational friendship. Yes. Because especially during the 80s, there were teen movies and there were adult movies. There were teen horror movies and there were adult horror movies. Yep. And when Tom Matthews comes to work at this place, he befriends the older guy and the guy actually wants to seem cool to his new young yeah. co-worker. And they create this camaraderie. And even though you know that Tom Matthews' character, Freddie, his punk friends are going to be arriving soon, he still is very invested in the friendship he has with this older guy. And it, of course, sets the events of the film into motion. But it's so rare to actually watch a movie of this time where there wasn't the adult kid divide, but yeah. this one, everyone's in it together and they're all likable. They all seem to like each other, even when the shit hits the fan. And they're all crazy. That's yes. the other thing, right? Like, like they don't have the, th the, the adults show up right now. It would be, they would be boomers, you know, because, uh, you know, of the way it would be presented and they would be boring and straight laced and following the rules. No, no, no. These people are just as crazy as the kids are. And it, it and wild shenanigans ensue. And you're right. They're intergenerational and they all get to have a lot of fun and we get to watch them having fun, you know, survive this, you know, zombie apocalypse. And I'm sorry, I messed up your segue, but getting back to all of this, academic, punk rockness, great music. It is the perfect segue to our first guest. She is also someone who goes way, way back with me, back to the 90s and was around at the very beginning of Midnight Mass. And um, I have a, a long, long relationship with her. So she, she was a fitting guest in that way because it is Return of the Living Dead. But she's also a fitting guest in another way because she is the preeminent expert on queer horror. And it's official. She's a it doctor. Is. She's the, a doctor of queer horror. She's got a PhD. This kick-ass woman is here today, and we're thrilled to have her. Without further ado, it's the fabulous Heather Petrocelli. Oh, my, my favorite, favorite brain Cream. Everybody, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce our very, very special guest. This is a dear old friend of mine. Yes, old, old. Uh, she and I go way, way back, all the way back to the late 90s. Uh, she was an instrumental part of the beginning era of the Midnight Mass live event back at the Bridge Theater. She worked at the Bridge Theater. She and I became very close friends. She shot all of my short films. So if you've seen the short films, um, 
um, that I made, the, the sort of silly drag horror parodies. This is the woman who shot those movies. She also has blackmail footage of me and blackouts that could last for uh, years. If this footage gets out, I'm destroyed. I'll be canceled. So that's the real reason we're having her on the podcast. I need to keep her in my good graces. And uh, But I do love her. And she is smart. She's an academic. Get this. She is a doctor of queer horror. I'm not lying. She's received her PhD. She has her doctorate and her dissertation, Queer for Fear, is now going to be an upcoming book. And I'm going to mess up the full title. So I'm going to let her uh, say it right now. Without further ado, it's my fantastic dear old friend, Heather Petrocelli. Thank you for that intro. That was very fun. Um, definitely emphasis on old. Uh, yes, and yes. The, the book is essentially... The dissertation's being truncated down to a book called Queer for Fear, Horror Film, and the Queer Spectator, which is forthcoming, um, hopefully from the University of Wales Press, hopefully this year, but if not, early next year. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, Heather, before we jump into the punk rock zombie anarchy that we're here to discuss today, I gotta ask, there you are, holding the camera, watching Peaches get stabbed in her birdseed tits. Are there any, like glorious behind the scenes moments from these short films that you can share with our listeners. Nothing that is safe for the airwaves. <laughs> well, she hasn't been safe for the airwaves for about 30 plus episodes at this point. So. <laughs> no, honestly, all of my memories from that time are very, they're very warm and they're very, they're loving. Actually, it's not about the salaciousness. It's not about the debauchery. It's about a group of misfits finding a commonality and a connection and doing crazy shit at with a crazy ringleader kind of leading us all into some weird territories. And it was actually a very fun time, but I do have a lot of after parties footage that I haven't looked at in what, God, that like almost 20, God, how many years ago is please that? Please oh don't, my God. please don't. Well, I mean, it's over 20 years. I mean, some of it, well, Ugh. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, for, yeah, definitely yeah. over 20 years and around 20 years. And so just to kind of like let people understand what the after party was, <laughs> this is insane. We would do Midnight Mass. And in my own logic as a producer, I felt like as long as I could keep it together for the stage show and get up on stage, which I did mostly, not always, but get up on stage and be relatively sober enough to like do the show before the movie, that when the movie was screening, myself and the people that worked at the Bridge Theater and the other cast members, we were out in the lobby having a fucking rager, like every <laughs> week. And I don't know if you remember this, Heather, but like the liquor store across the street from the bridge started to like want to be part of the party and they would just give us bottles of liquor, tons of beer, whatever we wanted. And we were sticking it in the ice chests that were for the soda machines. And so by the time the audience left, sometimes there were people literally passed out on the lobby floor. The audience would just walk over them. And um, a lot of these memories have come to light because uh, I scanned a bunch of old photos, which I shared with Heather, which took us both down memory lane. And it was a wild, lovely time. And then we would party sometimes till the sun came up and then we would go home as the sun was rising. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fun time. And it was, it was scandalous, but Heather's right. I think more than anything, it was like my first sense of chosen family in, you know, in the Bay Area. And most of us have stayed pretty close. 
even though we don't see each other as often as maybe we'd like, we're, we're still fairly close. And I um, am glad that Heather's here today because Heather shares a total love of not just this movie, but so many movies that we love at the Midnight Mass podcast, which is why it was hard to choose one. But I think this film in particular speaks to all of us. Yeah, and let's be honest, when you're talking about a group of misfits partying in places where they shouldn't be, let's all take a little dose of trioxin and jump back to the past. Heather, when did you first discover Return of the Living Dead? Oh, 1985. I went and saw it at a mall theater and it was immediate love. You know, it was one of those films where um, it, it's one of those movies where I have a strong affinity towards horror comedies anyway, because they both serve, you know, there's a cathartic release both in comedy and horror and they're very closely related. And a film, you know, I was a teen. So also with, you know, one of the things I love about cult movies is that you have a relationship with these cultural artifacts and that relationship develops. So but when I first saw the movie, I genuinely laughed and I was genuinely scared. Like I was a teenager. I think I was in junior high school. So it's, that's, that was my first, you know, foray into, um, you know, the dead partying in graveyards. <laughs> <laughs> I think that you bring up something that's really worth talking about, which is one of the reasons I think we love the movie is we get into all the fun reasons we love it. I think that the punkness of the movie, the music of the movie, the wildness of the performances, it is just fucking perfection. But I think one thing about successful horror comedies, especially of the 80s, was that some were more funny than scary. Some were more scary than funny. And then you'd get this sort of magical movie. I would say Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, and um, Return of the Living Dead might be two of the best examples of movies that function on high levels of both scares and laughs. They really do. And, and re-watching Return of the Living Dead, I was actually like, oh, I forgot. This is scary. Like, there's some moments where, yeah. you know, it, it is pretty daunting, that film. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that we've talked about a lot in our, you know, our relationship that goes back many years is that Return of the Living Dead has this, you and I grew up loving John Waters. We grew up loving Sam Raimi. And both of those filmmakers have this combination where they constantly bring in this perfect mix of tonal punkness, uh, comedy, camp, horror, all together, put it in a blender. And I think Return of the Living Dead is one of those films that, perfectly encapsulates that kind of same aesthetics. I think that's why it's like Dan O'Bannon didn't go on to do like, like was this his only film he directed or did he direct other films? I, it's not like, you know, a filmmaker that you follow. I haven't followed. I know that he wrote yeah. the screenplay for alien, but I don't think he was a big director after that. So it is like this very perfect moment in time, 1985 in this combination of, of all these things I had already loved with filmmakers like um, Sam Raimi and John Waters. This leads us to something that Peaches and I discuss quite a bit on the show, but I think you're a perfect guest to speak to this on a larger scale because this is largely uh, something that is brought up in your dissertation. And it's the idea of the balance between humor and horror, because sometimes we deal with kind of fair weather fright fans who are like, not into the, the blending of these things. And they say, "How I don't want my, my horror to be funny, but I think it all kind of is because there is this synergy 
or symbiosis rather between horror and comedy. And I was wondering if you could just speak to that a little bit. So here's one of the things that I would say is an underlying argument of my dissertation, which you are one of the few humans who actually read it. So we can kind of have a conversation and Josh can join in about some of the points where you do an entire show based on cult cinema. And I think what I mainly argued at a very baseline level is that queer spectatorship of horror is a cult spectatorship of a genre because there is a very queer connection to this genre. So one of the things about this film in particular is that it has a high camp. Like even when I was a kid and I probably, you know, I hadn't read Susan Sontag's notes on camp in 1985, (laughs) right? Right. I wish, I wish I had, but I hadn't, but I knew I was drawn to that film for not the same reasons that the like people I would have seen it with the other teens who weren't queer because I didn't have queer. I actually didn't have actual queer, really queer friends until the midnight mass era in the late nineties. Um, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought of like what the actual question was because I was kind of rambling about camp and this like symbiosis between comedy and horror. The reason I think it really matters in a film like this is because the queer reception of horror, even at many times when there's not an overt comedy to it, it is kind of transferred in the brain process into being a kind of camp comedy anyway, even if it's not a funny camp comedy that can make any sense does that make sense to you yes it totally makes sense in fact we were uh talking before we started recording about the fact that both heather and i have seen paul verhoeven's benedetta and i think that that's a great example of of a film that some people are going to watch and experience a very particular way and then queer people are going to watch it and really experience it in a different way and mommy dearest is a great example of that you know because here's a movie that's essentially about child abuse it's a taboo subject if you take that film at face value it is a fucking horror movie. It is sad. It is awful. It's harrowing. But it was queers who took it and turned it into a comedy. I mean, and really, that is unique to queer spectatorship, you know? And it has to do with the way that we process camp, the way that we process life, and the way that we see the world. And Heather brought up John Waters earlier. John, in many ways, is considered this sort of master of camp. But if you look at what he's doing, he's actually just making fun of things that are normal, quote unquote, and actually exaggerating, you know, things like suburbia, American ideals. And Return of the Living Dead, I think, in many ways was fabulous because it was a bona fide horror movie that did the things that horror movies are supposed to do. It was gross. It had fabulous special effects. It had nudity, you know, um, it had, you know, it had all those tropes, but then for the queer people, it gave us a little something more. I would say that a, a part of it is just the aesthetic of it, the punk rockness of it, the, um, and the performances. I mean, that's actually one thing I would love to talk about next is Heather, what do you think about these performances and what makes them, you know, I think so special. You know, I, I rewatched the film. I, you know, like kind of like my homework to prepare to talk to you about it. And it, this time I was like, really look, trying to look at each performance. Cause like we they said a little bit ago, film is like, it's like a relationship with the film you develops. And I became really obsessed about the fact that like, I think that everyone kind of found their own truth in the script. And so like James Karen is not in the exact same film as Freddie is in, 
Yes. But that dynamic works so well between the two of them where you're just like, like that whole intro, like it's one of my favorite intros to a title sequence too, because it goes on for what, nine minutes or something before you get to the title sequence. Yep. Yeah. And then you have these kids and they're all kind of, you know, very, very early in their career. And then you have the three, let's call them the three older dudes. We'll ignore the Colonel for now. And they're like, you know, old school actors who had been around for a long time at that point in time. So they're the seasoned ones. And even all of them are kind of in a different movie. But there's something that I think is because the way we go about life, like we all live in our own subjective experiences of what this world is. So somehow everyone being in a different film coming together actually feels, it feels very real. It feels very earnest. It feels like real life. And the way that they also scripted it in, well, at least the way they delivered the script, I guess. Um, I think they must have rehearsed because they do that beautiful blending of overlapping dialogue. So it yeah. feels like actual real conversation. Well, and I love that you speak to the reality of everyone having their own reality, because you're right. If you look at the general in comparison to leg warmers on tits out on the grave, it seems so disparate, right? But it works because this movie manages to handle the fact that everyone approaches life in their own strange dynamic way. Because of that, we get so many awesome performances. I mean, you mentioned Freddie and Frank, they're amazing. But you know, you you also have all of the punk kids, Miguel Nunez, Linnea Quigley, oh, yeah, totally. you know, all of them. Spider and trash, yes, yes. Oh, yes. so good. <laughs> Do you have a favorite performance in this movie? And is there also a character that you consider doesn't get enough love? I guess I would actually have to say I am totally into Frank right now because if I were a character in that film, I'd be the dum-dum who's trying to show off to the kid about like, hey, want to <laughs> see these barrels? I would like inadvertently, you know, thwonk the you know barrel, unleashing the apocalypse, basically. And James Karen already loved James Karen because Poltergeist is another perfect film, right? Yeah, so, yes. you know, she's just going to move the headstones. Um he is on fever pitch 11 for almost the whole thing. And then when like the zombies are, you know, when the reanimation is happening, he's he just kind of, <laughs> I mean, just thinking about his performance is like, it just cracks me up, but it's so good. And that's exactly who I'd be. Um, as far as someone who doesn't get enough love, you know, those, those rabid weasels. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, it's one of those, effects that I think about a lot where I'm like, that's just toys with the symbol, like just those monkey, those monkey toys yeah. with the symbols. Like what an incredible special effect. Yes. Um, I'm going to just admit that I don't know all of the things that are out there in the world about this movie. I just love this movie. And so I don't know if Spider does get a ton of love or not, but when I was young, Spider is queer coded to me. Right. So, and I think it was because of the way, um, the way the, the clothing, it was like the clothing. I thought, oh, that character is totally gay. I don't ah, know what I and the hair. And the hair, all of it. And like, yeah. and the whole attitude and like Spider has like a few great lines. Not only does he call like, you know, I think he calls Bert, like kind of like yells at him about him being a honky. And then he does it. He's not in the mood to die tonight. I can't remember the exact line, but he's not. Yeah. You know, he's in no mood to die tonight. So I'll go with Spider because there's a deep love. Plus, you know, Miguel was in, Friday and loves enchiladas. 
Yeah. Friday the 13th, part five, represent. <laughs> and, the other, and the other thing I think that's really lovely about Spider and would have been missing had he not been in the film or that character not been in the film is the linkage to the hero from Night of the Living Dead. And knowing that Black people in horror films are often trivialized to such a degree, which we've talked about, you know, on the podcast. And of course, when, when we had William O. Tyler on to talk about Night of the Living Dead, that having a hero who's a Black man is a big deal. And I think they could have done more with it in Return of the Living Dead, but at least he's there. And I think you're right. Like he is underrated and he is a great character and he isn't one of the first people to die. And actually he makes good choices and he's actually respectful. You know, there's there's moments in the, the film where he's concerned, you know, about the people around him and stepping up to be a hero. Yeah, he's the kind of smart friend where you're like, He's proactive as opposed to just being reactive. He's trying to figure things out. And he would have been a survivor if the film actually weren't so fucking bleak and everyone dies. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which which I think also kind of talking about horror and comedy and camp and all these different things, I think that there's something also that I remember this. Like, you know, I, it's important to say that it scared me because, you know, it, there's nothing about the movie that scares me now, right? But when I was a teenager, the movie did scare me. And one of the things that scared me the most is that it hit a, there is such a darkness to the film that it hit into my lifelong existential anxiety that I live with. And it's the idea that these zombies, they're sentient beings, they're feeling, they, they you know, the half corpse is kind of like the pain of being dead and feels themselves yeah. rotting, like, holy Fuck. Yeah. yeah. Let's dig into that. I'm glad you brought up the ending because it is an exceptionally bleak ending. But this is a horror comedy, as we're discussing. And, you know, Peaches earlier mentioned Evil Dead to Dead by Dawn. And if you look at the trajectory of horror comedies that are being made around this time, Evil Dead 2, Return of the Living Dead, some could argue, uh, you know, Reanimator's comedic. American Werewolf in London is comedic, but they all share that they end terribly you know and it, it's that takes it away from the comedy and lands it firmly in horror and I, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that was was that just a response to the 80s why are our horror comedies why don't we get a good ending and by that I mean these endings are good to me as a viewer but not for the people living them. yeah I think it is you know horror is a vehicle for social commentary and cultural critique and I think that is exactly why they're often bleak and yeah, living through the 80s was a very, it, it's one of the things that's interesting about aging, in my opinion, is that you look back at times that you lived through and have very concrete formative memories from, and then you see people re-engaging with them in a sadly retro way. And you're like, you know, it, there was a lot of like darkness, like in 85, that's what, that would have been the beginning of Reagan's second term. We're in the Cold War. You know, and looking at politics today, look at like, think of the strained Cold War relationships in the middle of the 80s, because the events are real and they're, it's a meta film, right? So it's saying that the events of Night of the Living Dead are real, which was what, 68, although I think he says 66 in the film. But there's a guy in the government whose entire job for like, what, almost two decades is just try to track down these fucking barrels. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
sense. So the inefficiency, like the, the, the commentary on the fact that societal institutions can't do what they're supposed to do to protect or help or serve. So the U.S. military winds up obliterating them with nukes. So every, everyone dies. And of course, they made everything worse because now it's just going to go on. The paramedics don't do anything. The cops don't do anything. Everything is broken down. So I think that is why. It's like, it was a dark time and it also wasn't. But it was like, you know, I was busy listening to the Smiths and the Cure and Susie and I was already like a little dark kid trying to figure out how to like get along (laughs) in this world anyway. So I wanted to um, circle back to something um, you had said earlier just to confirm your guess is correct because uh, I am enough of a nerd of this film and loved this film long enough to actually know some of the behind the scenes tidbits that have come back to me because I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I rewatching it and being a big fan of it. It was like coming home to a great family reunion or something like just rewatching it just brought me so much joy. And I would say some of the movies that we have addressed on this podcast or talked about in general, there, there are times when you see a movie as an adult today and you go, Oh, Oh, this isn't as great as maybe I remembered it or, you know, it doesn't hold up. Not with this film. Oh, my God. I think I love it more today than I did when I was a kid. And I freaking loved it. But one of the things I do know about it that's really unique in the world of um, low budget horror films, which this certainly would be considered, um, especially at the time it was made, is they got to rehearse for two weeks. So Dan O'Bannon which is unheard of. That does not happen. You know, usually you don't get rehearsal for a movie like this. You're lucky to get a day or two, maybe, you know, but but Dan O'Bannon, who you're right, didn't really direct anything beyond this. He was a successful writer and he was not supposed to be the director. God, yeah. you'd think I would remember, but someone famous was supposed to Toby, direct. It, it was Toby, Toby Hooper. Toby. It was Toby yeah. Hooper, and you're right. He yeah. Was, yeah, and he was doing Life Force. Yeah, I do yes. remember that now. Yes, Which yes. Dan O'Bannon wrote. So yes. Dan, Toby Hooper shifted over to make Life Force and Dan O'Bannon wrote that and he was just like, well, I guess I'll direct this. And yes. it worked out. I mean, he's really the gift of this movie. Let's be honest. Oh, so good. And what you were saying about the seasoned vets working with the young people in that chemistry, um, just basically agreeing with everything you said about that. <laughs> and, uh, and and I agree. And I, I don't know that I'm surprised that you said this, but rewatching the film, James Karen, you know, his performance is so delicious. And one thing a bit of trivia that I think is really interesting is it was actually his idea and he worked with Dan to make it a reality that he commit suicide. And so it was actually his idea. And they went back and wrote in the moment where he says something about the, uh, the crematorium, like, Oh, I could, I could operate that, you know, so that it sets up it foreshadows what he, he does later in the movie. And it's all those little moments that actually make this movie so special. And your comment about them being sentient is also something I kind of forgot about until rewatching it. And when you hear the the, the zombie on the um, radio call for more paramedics or whatever, you realize how unique this is in the world of zombie universe because now we've had The Walking Dead. We've had, you know, so many things that have kind of tripled, quadrupled down on what zombies are, which are really the Romero, you know, kind of 
stupid, roving, you know what I mean? But these zombies ran. They could run. They could tackle you. They were also the first zombies to be interested in brains. Yeah. That had not existed before. So this movie, Dan O'Bannon is both the writer and director. Michael is right. That is the gift of this film because it is so special for so many different reasons. Next up, I want to ask you about the music. Uh, and what you what you think of the music and why that's special? Well, the music is special because it was the music that you felt like you were listening to on your alternative stations. Wherever you lived, every city had one yeah. or the col- local college station if you were in a college town. So to have the Cramps and the Damned and TSOL and yes. uh, gosh, who else? Well, uh, and also the score, right? Like that synth score oh. that's like a pop dance track of spookiness. Fucking yes. fabulous. Yeah. Maybe that is, maybe that, well, actually, see, again, I'm like, well, maybe the score does get a lot of attention, but that might be the unsung hero of the film, actually. Yeah, I agree. I think the score needs more attention because I was just listening to it. I was like jamming out to it. Like, oh my God, I love this song. But of course I haven't, I haven't heard it since um, the last time I saw it. And do you know what, Heather? I'm very, very jealous that you got to see this on the big screen. My discovery with it, and I'm guessing Michael's was as well. My discovery was VHS, you know? So um, you are a little bit older than I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> But I mean, let's talk yeah. about that VHS cover was an instant pool. When you saw those yes. like punk rock graffiti looking zombies, come on. I mean, it still is so yeah. cool. It's so cool. And Tar Man is still one of the best zombies ever. Sorry, but. Talk about a character that's not underrated. You've got this, <laughs> this part that could be, yeah, but this is not Freddy Krueger. This is not, this, this character is in the film for mere minutes and has come <laughs> to become the logo and the, the icon of the movie. That's just so genius. Well, you know what I read that I didn't know prior to this recording, even though I've seen this movie many, many times, is that the design of the zombies was based on several different things, including cultural representation of mummies from different cultures rather than zombies from other zombie movies, but also illustrations from EC Comics. And when I I read that, that sound you just made, Heather, was exactly what I did. I was just like, wait, because then you You think about... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what I did. And you're going to have to live with that in your mind forever. Uh, It was uh, just thinking of how Tarman is presented. You can see it. You can picture it on that like vault of horror page, right? Yes, that ooey, gooey, goopy, drippy. Yes, Tarman is a gift, just a gift. And Alan Troutman's performance is... (laughs) Okay, you are a nerd if you know his name. Either you're looking at Wikipedia right now or you are a nerd. I thought that that was like a known thing. Okay, okay, here's the reason I know. I'm also kind of obsessed with Muppets. I love Uh. me some fucking Muppets. (laughs) I don't know. It's one of those things. And Alan is mainly like a Muppet guy. Uh. And, And so... To know that there's this like crossover and some Venn diagram of like Alan Chapman, like he looks yeah. like a puppet. He does not look. If you didn't know that that's an <clears throat> actor in a suit, you could almost believe today by today's standards that that was some sort of CGI creation because right. his movement is so fluid 
and so yeah. perfect. Yeah, what a it is a genius performance. Uh, and this I don't know, so I'm just saying it, and we'll see. Maybe a listener will will respond, or maybe Alan Troutman himself will be like, "Hey, yes, <laughs> he seems like he has some background in contortion, or you mm. know, d- dance, or something, just the way he moves, or maybe that comes from working with Muppets because they have to be all sorts of wavy, wiggly, woggly to make those works." I think we're just making this all up, but I think that there is something to that because think of a Muppet. What does a Muppet not have? Bones. There's yeah. no bones in a fucking Muppet. And the way that Alan portrays Tarman, it's like an like a physically unhinged. It's like there's it's just so I mean, my love for, for Tarman is very deep, especially because when I was a kid, I used to sit there and think, oh, Tarman is actually one of the ghouls from Night of the Living Dead. That's that this is these are the barrels that the government yeah, has been trying to track yeah. down. So that made it cool because Night of the Living Dead was also a very important film to me when I was young. Because I discovered Night of the Living Dead and Pink Flamingos on the same night when I was a kid. Wow. And every, like nothing was the same anymore in my life after that moment. It was a very flash bulb moment in my life. So, yeah, Tar Man. Um, um, that's my chef's kiss for Tar Man. So I'm going to do, I'm gonna do a, a, a deeper cut uh, as far as underrated characters go and say that <laughs> what really stuck out to me on this viewing was how fabulous the colonel's wife is. She's she's barely on screen, but I could not take my eyes off her in any scene that she's in. I know we get all worked up sometimes on these podcasts, but like I am fucking singing its praises upside and down and around because this movie is so amazing. There isn't a single performance that isn't great. Like Don uh, Kalfa as Ernie is so good. so good, so bizarre. Well, so let's wonderful. take into account, we just talked about Muppets and there are two characters in this movie called Bert and Ernie. That's <laughs> intentional. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my God, I never even put that together until this moment. I mean, they, they, they missed their opportunity because it's Colonel Glover, but it should have been Colonel Grover. Oh, <laughs> yes, it should have been. All right, Heather, as we're wrapping up, I usually ask every guest this question, but you've been speaking to this the whole time about relationships changing with movies as you grow with them. So rather than ask you that, I want to know, because this movie was so rooted in a moment in time with you and you've spoken about how you've grown with it, what would you want a new generation to take away from this? Like, what would you tell someone who's discovering Return of the Living Dead for the first time? That's a complicated question for, because, you know, it's it's like I am a person that tries to not always just be back when I was a kid, you know? <laughs> but my dissertation was based on the largest empirical study. It was a survey in horror studies period. And it's all about queer spectatorship of horror. And I asked people their top five favorite horror films. So I wound this large list that once I compiled it down, you know, almost 20,000 films, it was 1,487 films that comprise queer spectators' favorite horror films. And I'm going through it and I'm just realizing that I have a really nasty reaction to CGI. But I'm sure I'm sure there's like so many films that are CGI enhanced that actually work because it's a combination of the two. So first thing is, I just hope there's like this return to practical effects and realizing that like monkeys with their symbols taken off are a brilliant effect and Tarman is a brilliant zombie. And that things can be bleak and funny, which is a really weird thing to talk about. But I think that that's part of queer existence is there's yeah. a underlying bleakness to queer existence, but we have a really good time <laughs> facing the, you know, the darkness that kind of comes at us at a constant um, 
I mean, it's constant, right? There's, you know, people talk about coming out, but you never stop coming out in lots of ways. So I think that it is for people to realize, like, I want there to keep being the next Return of the Living Dead that was made for some, you know, 12-year-old going into the movie theater today. So that exists 20 years, 20-something years from now for that next audience. I have an important question uh, since we're on serious subject matter. You are the doctor of queer horror and you have been living this uh, your whole life. So as a young lesbian in her formative years watching this film, I would like to know, because as we know, these movies were made for the, the teenage boy gays and this, this movie is clearly no exception in many ways. Yet it doesn't feel as rotten, even though it's super gratuitous. Uh, I don't know why that is. It, it, maybe we just accept it as camp. But who <laughs> has... <laughs> did you jerk off to the most? Was it Trash, Tina, Casey? Because there's a lot of hot trade, a lot of young women being paraded around this movie. You've got the nice, the nice, sweet, innocent girl. You've got sort of the badass. It's definitely um, not Tina. Tina, like, I'm just like zombies. <laughs> Fucking eat Tina. Please just get Tina out of the way. <laughs> okay, so you, you uh, didn't go for Tina. Okay. And then and the Casey is just like, it's fine. I mean, I, the thing I appreciate about Casey is that Casey is kind of like, hey, Chuck, you suck. I hate you. But then it's like, hey, we're all going to die. So come hold me. Um, right, right, right. But, but trash, let's just be real. So trash. Good. You're a dirty the, pervert. I am a dirty pervert. But the thing <laughs> is, I actually like trash with, you know, with her clothes on better because I just have like that whole like skull in the crotch, like when she's sitting in the graveyard with her yeah. like legs spread. And I'm just like, that would be the image where I'm like, yes. Wait, so you're <laughs> you're saying that you're literally hot for a woman who wears entire sweaters on her legs. <laughs> I, it's not the it's not the leg warmers, it's the it's Okay, the, those leg warmers that, are out of control. Out of control. It's true. <laughs> yeah. But I get it. I get it. I mean, come on, fucking props to Lydia Quigley. I know she gets lots of props, but like she's porky pigging it throughout this entire fucking film. She that is. is like, yeah. Although I love that you mentioned her outfit because the imagery of her naked on that tombstone is so like part of the the iconography of this film that you forget her outfit when she first shows up that like red leather situation <laughs> yeah. is yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's so good. And like, just like, I mean, like if I could just, if I could get away with like having some like little hot pants with like the little skull in the crotch and just sit around like spread eagle everywhere, that's exactly what I'd be doing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, to me, I mean, as we all know, and if you don't know, you should know Linnea Quigley is one of the most renowned scream queens, you know, who really was willing to do anything and was such a great performer. And if you listen to the interviews of the people about the making of this movie, one thing you hear over and over and over again, not from her, but everyone else, is everyone complaining about how cold it was because they were shooting in L.A. at night right. and they were in constantly being drenched with water, right? So, you know, rain and wetness. And you never hear her complaining about it, or at least no. I haven't, the way the others complain. And she was wearing, she's the one wearing no clothes, you know, for hours at a time. And, you know, I just feel like this movie and then um, her fantastic, I forget the character's name, but her role in Night of the Demons. Yeah, she sticks the lipstick into her tit. Um, you know, I just feel like between these two movies, it's like she does deserve all trophies and prizes. Oh, it's true. She, well, she was queen of the late night cable for the longest time. So she yeah. could have an idol worship all her own. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I just want to say also, just because I have the data, not all the data made it into the dissertation, which means it won't make it into the book. But 
horror loving queers like overwhelmingly do love horror comedy film. Like that was one, like, oh, great. Yeah, all subgenres were loved, but it was way up there. And in this process of going through and watching all of these films that, yeah, and I'm doing it at Queer for Fear on Instagram. One of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of films, it's like one person, three people, two people, like very small numbers, but almost a hundred people listed Return of the Living Dead as oh. a top five favorite film, horror film. Oh my God, I'm just realizing something. What? I must have a thing for lesbians named Heather working closely with me behind the scenes because <laughs> the woman that does all the audio design for this show is a lesbian named Heather who's into horror. I think you two need to meet, you know, not that you, you, I mean, you're married. I'm not trying to get you together, but like as friends, you know what I mean? Like as friends. And then they can be Heathers, but not bump donuts because uh, Heather (laughs) Petricelli, Heather Petricelli is taken. She has a beautiful Uh, wife named Ami, who I love and adore. So Heather Dunham, don't even think it. Cause you know, you can't trust these people think gay men are, terrible. Oh, please. You don't even <laughs> want to get me started on the lesbians. Well, with that, they'll steal your wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're worse than zombies. <laughs> well, with that, we're pressing the button and ending the world. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I do love you, Heather. And I'm so glad we got to have you on the podcast. And when the book comes out and before we have to have you back on the podcast and um, I'm, I can't wait to see you in Portland because I'm yeah. coming up to Portland uh, at the end of June to do All About Evil, you know, with our dear friend, Carla Rossi, yes. another guest of the podcast. Yes. Very excited for all of it. And I would love to come back and just literally talk about queer spectatorship of horror as cult. Well, let's do That's that. Good. In fact, as you know, we're constantly looking for content. Maybe you could um, appear on one of our special Patreon extras. We could lure you back to talk some more. Yeah, I, my my fee is giving me the money. I have called the number on the barrels. I think it's like 1-800-454-5000, like whatever. It's a phone sex line. Oh, so I just, oh. need, I just need someone to fund me talking to the hot girls. Okay. So. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. I think that's a fair <laughs> trade, honestly. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye bye. And that was our interview with the fabulous Heather Petricelli. I could not have loved that conversation more. I, you know, obviously Heather has a a deep love of this movie, but also it's as, as we talked about in setting up her interview, she approaches the material with such a keen academic eye and her dissection of the story and its connection to queer spectatorship, of course, is something that speaks to me and to you because we're both very vested in the queer intersection uh, with horror. So that, that conversation just like, you know, I'm going to be thinking about it for days. The sad thing about having Heather on is that we really honestly could have Heather on for like half the episodes we we do. If we could, you know, and the audience wouldn't think we were uh, phoning it in, you know, we'd have our some of these guests on for multiple episodes because they're so well qualified. But I have to say, because this movie means so, so much to me, as you know, I was holding out for the right episode to invite Heather on. And it was kind of like, oh, shit, we're going to do Return of the Living Dead. She should do that. Because the other thing that we didn't really talk about 
um, because it kind of might have been weird, is that Heather doesn't just like study horror. She is, Heather is covered with sleeves. A lot of people don't know because she wears long sleeves, but she has tattoo sleeves on her arms, like huge, elaborate sleeves. One of her whole arms is Universal Monsters. And it is gorgeous. I mean, like she is a horror fanatic. She also has John Waters tattoos and she's my peeps, you know. She's the real deal, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that we didn't discuss is that Heather actually is a music lover, like a cool music lover. She has loved and stayed in touch with cool music since I met her and actually introduced me to a lot of music. So there's a lot of reasons why she was just such a perfect choice for this this discussion. We talked about your connection uh, with Heather back to the early days of Midnight Mass. And uh, in the intro, I also talked to you about how the DNA of bringing a group of misfits together, both in this movie and both in your life, there's a commonality and an interwovenness. But maybe you have done it, and I just don't know it, which is a good educational moment. But for, for this movie that you love so much, what's the Midnight Mass show look like? And who would you play? What is so wild is that I never did this at Midnight Mass. And I think that is really strange. We did Night of the Living Dead. I think we did, did we do Dawn of the Dead? Maybe not. We definitely did Night of the Living Dead. In fact, we did Night of the Living Dead um, with Elvira. That was one of the shows I did with Elvira. Um, Return of the Living Dead, like a few other films, including Heather's, I'm trying to think of what else, Reform School Girls, there were often reasons that the theatrical rights were either contended somehow or just not available. Like Halloween, right. not available. You could not book Halloween for, for decades theatrically. This has all changed. So some people would go, oh, wait, I can get, yeah, I can do that now. And yeah, sure. Yeah, things have changed. But when I was booking Midnight Mass, there were a bunch of titles that I was not able to get. And this was one of them. And that drove me fucking bananas, especially this one and Reform School Girls. Like, they're just, they were begging for a Midnight Mass celebration. So this would definitely be some big, giant punk rock. You know, the decor would be graffiti and a giant cemetery. And, you know, I, uh, we would just go all out and probably reenact a ton of the movie. Yeah, this might be one that even I would insist on being in somewhere. Like, because it's too fun. You, like, can't, like, this ensemble's so huge. You know, we should actually, and I know we've said this before, but this might be one of those moments, much like when we did our Phantom of the Paradise live event, where I get the opportunity through the podcast to do a screening of something that I wasn't able to do earlier. And um, I still don't know if Return of the Living Dead theatrical rights are available, but let's look into it because this would be such a fucking fun movie. Now, I know what you're going to ask, or uh, you should be asking, is what character would Peaches be? And if you were listening, I did ask you that. God, I wasn't listening. Um, so, <laughs> yes. Now now listeners know what it's like every week. <laughs> oh, shit. I know. I, I jumped right into what would the show be like. Um, okay, this is what I would, I would want to be, and I, I don't think this will surprise you. I would want to come up with the Peaches version of either old lady zombie on the table or the peaches version of tar man. And probably it would be the peaches version of tar man because 
I, of course, most drag queens would go, oh, I'm going to be Lydia Quigley and I'm going to wear fucking sweaters on my legs and have my cooch, you know, and titties on display, which would be a great drag part. But it's not the best part, I think, for peaches. I think figuring out a way to do a peaches. In fact, that's what I need to be this year for Halloween. Tar woman. Yeah. I'm going to be tar woman for Halloween. (gasps) Oh, my God. That is so great. I'm so excited about that. Well, listeners, uh, you heard it here first. In fact, that's the kind of costume I should start planning now, Tar Woman. Don't you think? Yeah, I can't wait to see it. I'm already sort of picturing what it might look like, and I'm probably wrong, but... Well, it'll be gorgeous, whatever it is. (laughs) I mean, as you know, I've done Peach's versions of Nosferatu, Pinhead, uh, Leatherface, Freddy Krueger. You know, they're all so stunning, you know, beautiful. Truly breathtaking. <laughs> well, our um, our love affair with this film continues now with with our next guest. Speaking of breathtaking, that's true. That's true. I could not deal with having to see Michael Verratti interview this next guest because the drool, the drool, the sheer amounts of drool just did not stop. I was living <laughs> the experience of being a zombie. <laughs> oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Somehow, somehow you weren't it's, doing that. It's when we called, interviewed. it's called method acting peaches. You should right. check it okay. out. But it, it was limited to our interview with Pablo, not Heather. Interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, he is, Uh, a stunner. Both Michael and I um, agree. He's actually a friend, dear friend, much like Heather. This is definitely a family episode with the guests this week, but you may know him, uh, especially if you're part of the tonal community, which is like an exercise cult of people because he's one of the celebrity uh, coaches on, on the tonal app. You may know him from there. You may know him if you're a pervert who goes to the baloney show. You may know him from attending Peaches Christ Productions, or you may know him from his very own podcast. Podcast. He is a renaissance dude, but at the end of it all, he's a horror fan, also covered in horror tattoos, much yeah. like Heather. So without further ado, uh, let's hear it for the fantastic Pablo Escobar. Yes, that's his real name. Everybody, it's me, Peaches, about to introduce another of our special guests. Well, he's a celebrity trainer, for one. And, and people ask, what does that mean exactly? It's like, well, he's a trainer who's become a celebrity because he's so out there with his training because he's one of the tonal trainers. So he's a, kind of a, a trainer for the rich and the famous, but also me. He's uh, the trainer of Peaches Christ. So um, so I guess I guess he's not very good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he's also the co-host of the Scared Gay podcast, which 
as you can imagine, is about queers and horror movies. And that's one of the reasons he's the perfect guest to bring on because he's a horror fanatic. Oh, and one other thing. Some of you might know him as one of the stars of Baloney, uh, the uh, San Francisco all-gay, all-male, quote-unquote, review that is also the subject of a documentary film. Um, so he is a man of all trades, and he's been in many, many Peaches Christ productions. Oh, my God, I could go on and on. So without further ado, and yes, this is his real name. Let's hear it for Pablo Escobar. Wow, what an intro. I sound I sound a triple threat. I love it. Well, you are a triple threat, right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I would argue there was maybe quadruple quintuple threats mm-hmm. going on in there. Oh, damn. Well, I mean, I have been accused of being a, a threatening and imposing personality when I train Except not not for peaches. Not really. I was going to say, nice. maybe some of the threats are going to be directed towards peaches after the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, the other thing, and I didn't mention this, but he's also dog daddy uh, to one of my yes. favorite dogs in the world, little Debbie, who I got oh, to yeah. see earlier today. So, yes, you, you wear many, many wigs in this world. Yeah. I have to tell you, and you both are going to understand what I mean, but in this queer community, when someone says dog daddy and does not further clarify, which I'm glad Peaches did. I'm like, where's this going to go? Could go anywhere. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 100%. because people literally are dogs in our community and they call themselves pups and they wear chains and collars and they pee on the floor. And Speaking of chains and collars as a fashion statement, why don't we jump into this week's movie? <laughs> Pablo, when did you first discover Return of the Living Dead? I can't even tell you when I first discovered it because I literally have been watching it my entire life. It's, I, I, I'm assuming one of my older cousins made me watch it when I was a little kid and I've just been seeing, watching it ever since. And I, anytime I have to, like, I buy a new, like I lose DVDs or whatever. I have to always buy this film. This, I have this on iTunes. I will watch it on anything. I, you know, used to have like the Blu-ray version of it. Like I just, I love this film. It's in like the top five for sure of like my all-time favorite films. One thing we should say is that Pablo is a real horror fan. Like Pablo constantly is talking to me about the new horror movies he's seen. He's always watching horror movies. He has tattoos of horror movie fandom on his body. Most recently, a sort of Tom of Finland, Jason Voorhees tattoo of a very muscular uh, Jason. In fact, Pablo, please allow me to take a photo of that tattoo and post it on our Patreon. Yeah. So for those of of you that are perverts out there, Pablo is a very muscular, popular gay uh, icon of desire and slut. Yes. So we, Pablo is going to, I'm going to do a photo shoot with Pablo for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to see these photos, if you know what I mean, these, yeah. Scandalo. Yes. Um, But I just wanted to clarify that you are a true horror fan and in your studio where we work out together, where you train me, there is a return of the living dead framed poster hanging Mm -hmm. on the wall. So it only made sense that I said, oh my God, well, we've got to get Pablo on for this show. So with your love of this film, and obviously much like I think Michael and I, you've always loved it. You've continued to love it. What is it specifically? Because I know that you've seen thousands upon thousands of horror movies. How does this movie, why? What makes it special enough to reach your top five? First off, the soundtrack is amazing. 45 Grave is just like the best when it comes to like horror rock and like just like the rock music and like how alternative it was for the time. 
This is an amazing soundtrack. So the soundtrack really just adds a lot to it. But I consider this, like, this for sure is a, a horror comedy. And it has really good horror elements written in it. Where I, you know, we, I was just watching it with Chris. And he was telling me, like, if he had seen this as a kid, Tarman would have, like, destroyed him. Like, he was just like, that is the scariest, like, zombie monster I've seen. And, like, the scene where they're, like, eating and, like, attacking the um, the paramedics is so spooky. Like, it's just, it's so good. So it, it really is well-written when it comes to the horror element. And it's fucking high camp in, like, the coolest way. I don't know. It just really speaks to everything that I really like. The costuming, the characters. I mean, come on. Like, dancing naked on a grave. Like, the whole thing is so cool. It really (laughs) is, like, a cool, cool cool-ass film. It's just, it has a lot of cool elements to it, the way it's written. The zombie woman who's talking about brains. I mean, the fact that they gave her such beautiful breasts <laughs> she's like <laughs> decomposed everything just like mwah, mwah, chef's kiss everything when yeah. uh, regarding this film it's so good and Linnea Quigley I mean Linnea Quigley is amazing yeah so something that we discussed with our other guests in a more broad sense with relation to this film is is mm-hmm. the queer draw to Return of the Living Dead but I'm wondering you know this movie is about a, a group of punk kids who who are outside of the mainstream is is this movie in its DNA something that you think draws queer viewers more than most? A thousand percent. I think, you know, in, in my podcast, we talk about for the gay gays and we, we we break it down into three parts. Like, is there gay representation in this? And then one of the other ones is, does it kind of understand the wants and the needs and the language of a queer audience? And does it have a gay following? Well, I know this has a gay following because every queer person I know that is a horror fanatic, loves this film. And I think one of the things that this film does so well is like weaving in the camp because that speaks to us queer people, that like extraness that we all like, that kind of sass. And the characters are super colorful. I mean, you know, you have like what slash and suicide and like all those characters, like they're just They're so cool. They're the people I remember as a little kid, I knew I was gay and I was like, when I grow up, I'm going to be like them. (laughs) Like I was going to be so cool. That's something I think horror does really well. Um, It really does kind of go hand in hand with camp. So like, you know, drag me to hell is, is great, but you know, um, serial mom, like it's like up there with all those things where it's just like, it's funny, it's entertaining. And it like winks at like a gay audience the entire time. Yeah. I think that you answered that so well, because I think you touched upon something that we haven't yet talked about, which is the, the notion of, okay, like, are there queer people and is this a queer story? Well, no, not really, not necessarily. However, because of the way that the story is told, Mm-hmm. i.e. camp um, being, you know, the, the mechanism, the, the over-the-top performances, the unapologetic sort of outrageousness of it all mixed with the characters who are the young people. And, and, and I think we should get into that. This was the first time, maybe the Lost Boys did this as well, I think, when I think about horror movies. But this to me is like one of the best examples of sort of um, punk rockers goth sort of the freaks the weirdos and i'm trying to think of other examples as i'm talking maybe night of the demons also maybe also linnea quigley but really only one character right 
it's it's this group of misfits. They are a group of misfits. And as a queer kid growing up, as the kid in the 80s who listened to Depeche Mode, who wore all black, who was obsessed with Susie and the Banshees, this was the closest I ever got to seeing myself in a movie. In fact, this movie's so old that it might be one of the reasons I ended up dressing that way and liking mm. this kind of music was because yeah. of this movie. You know, because queer kids, especially in the 80s, this is where we hid. Th- these are the people yeah. we found solace in because if you were making fun of us because of our mohawk or wearing all black or our piercings, we weren't necessarily being made fun of because we're like fags, right? So yeah. in many, many ways, I do think that you can look at the kids who are heterosexual in the movie, but they're really queer. They're actually, they're queer, you know? So one of the things that I find really interesting is you have like the punk kids and like a goth kid. And then like what I would consider like the new wave kids, you know? Yeah. And like, I always thought the new wave kids were the ones who were like coded. Now, now, now that I'm older, like they're the ones that are coded as like gay. Cause you know, when I think of like queer eighties, I think of like boy George, I think of like um, dead or alive. Yeah. 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 And they you know. seemed much more like new wave and like their aesthetic. Yeah. And like, that's definitely something that at least I kind of attributed to like, what's his name? Uh, Chuck. I always found Chuck to be so hot, even though yeah. uh, Freddie is like, so <laughs> Freddie can get it. Oh yeah, for sure. I think that was something that like was also kind of this movie's way of probably trying to like queer code a little bit by creating this like style. Cause like, you know, everything else where heterosexuality is like centered, let's say they weren't super like new wave, like into that stuff. Right. They didn't have like flock of seagull hair essentially. And like in this film they do. So I was like, all right, this right. is like, the you're right. And you're right. Peaches. This is like the misfits, the, yeah. the kind of on the fringe kids. Yeah. And I'm into it. Well, taking that into account, so we talk about, you know, there are punk kids and goth kids and new wave kids, and they look like it. They have they yeah. have the operative drag of the era. Um, and this movie is full of colorful, seemingly authentic characters. Who are your favorite characters in this film? I did like Chuck and what's her name? Casey, the the girl with like, I always thought she was like Latina or like Filipino, mm-hmm. like the the like kind of brown girl um who I had really, the the sort of the, the makeup on her face the sort of drawing yes. yeah 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 i always like them i don't know i they're kind of secondary characters you have to admit that you that that's because you've watched the movie a lot you know who yeah. these people are yeah oh yeah i mean and of course like um linnea quigley's character trash like trash i mean yeah the name alone so well what what i love about her character is she starts like such a raging bitch and then before she dies she becomes like a whiny like oh i'm getting wet ah, the whole entire time but before that she's like i like death <laughs> yeah. you like death like i yeah. love I'm, it's it's kind of hard to say they're not necessarily like super written well out and like a, you know this isn't a a, a character study right <laughs> at true. all but the way that they're written they all just seem really really fun what's his name um he's part of the friend group he's the black kid spider 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 yeah miguel nunez miguel nunez yeah yeah for some reason i had always known he was latino so i was like hell yeah there's a latino person in this like he's so cool um but he seems pretty smart you know and he's like 
kind of always getting frustrated when they they all make stupid decisions. And so I was like, oh, cool. Like, I don't know. Yeah, we actually we actually talked about that a little bit earlier. And I think it's it's worth pointing out because you as a Latin viewer, you know, when we did Night of the Living Dead, we we interviewed William O. Tyler, who's a, a black horror loving fan of horror movies. And he talked about how Night of the Living Dead was specifically so important, informative for him because it was the first time he'd seen a black man, you know, as a hero. And honestly, what's so sad about that is how ahead of its time it was, because it wasn't like you saw it again. It's not like Night of the Living Dead opened the door and then we saw a bunch of horror movies with black male leads. That That's not what happened. But I do think with Return of the Living Dead, you know, seeing a person of color in that friend group mm-hmm. who's not dumb, who's not a, a total joke or a racial stereotype. Exactly. He actually moves the plot forward. He actually does heroic deeds. In many ways, it's kind of a nice nod to the original, you know, progressiveness of Night of the Living Dead. And this time, like any Black actors would always just end up playing a gang member or just something. And it's like, right. oh, mm-hmm. come on. Like, yeah. they're people. They can like whatever. They'll be in any friend group. And, you know, in horror films, notoriously, they always kill off the Black character first. Well, in this one, he's like alive the whole yeah. movie. And he's right. doing a lot of cool stuff. And he's working with people. And he's just, he's great. Well, and mm-hmm. what I think is important is earlier you said it's not necessarily a character study, but... What's important is how all the characters have agency in ways that they usually don't in other horror films. And you're speaking to that here because you're right. So often it was just far too easy for characters to fulfill tropes. The punk's the punk. The black guy's the black guy. The gay kid's the gay kid. And in this movie, at least, even though we're not getting this, you know, Brechtian breakdown of who everyone is, they feel authentic in a way that I I think really sells the movie. Would you agree? I 100% agree. Suicide is the, the like the punk guy, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So suicide, yeah. Uh, <laughs> God, the names are so great. There's that one scene where he's like, "You think this is a joke? Like this isn't just the, you know, this is my life. This isn't just like fashion yeah, he or has whatever." Feelings. He has feelings. <laughs> he runs deep. Yeah, yeah, and and he like gets mad at trash for not respecting the dead so (laughs) yeah you're right they're not just tropes they're definitely people they have agency yes he dies he's the first one to die yeah he is but i mean like if you're gonna die you want it to be that seed with you know tar man for real but um i 100 agree with you there like these these characters though they are not fleshed out they also aren't one note right and one of the nice things about this film that could have kind of gone a different direction is that you do have this sort of marriage between a group of people who are young actors who for many of them, um, this was their first film, this was their first credit, um, which is great and, and so cool that they you know got to have this experience. But there are yeah. three older male leads who are seasoned vets in the industry mm-hmm. and are old white guys, let's face it, and could have shown up and been such Debbie Downers, right? And not participated and not played along and, and kind of embraced the spirit of the film. But I have to give credit to James Karen, who plays yeah. Frank, Don Calfa, who plays Ernie, and Clue, how do you say his last name? Gulliger? Gulager. Gulager, who plays yeah. Bert. 
Um, you know, Clue, of course, is so recognizable. Even if you're not a fan of Westerns, he's been in so many freaking movies. I mean, hundreds, literally. Go look at his go look at his credit list. He's hundreds. the dad in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. He's yeah. the dad in The Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And of course, James Karen, as we talked about, is is the 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 real estate mogul and poltergeist who, you know, moves the headstones, but not the bodies and plays that role in a very restrained way. You know? Yeah. But to see these three chew the scenery to deliver outrageous, fun camp performances, you know, I mean, to the point where James Karen is so wild sometimes, <laughs> it, is, it is almost hard to watch, you know, but it's it's just delicious. It's amazing. I'm also like a big fan of the Golden Girls, and I do remember Shocker. James Karen. Right. Shocking. Shocker. <laughs> he was in an episode of the Golden Girls where he, he oh, was really? like, yeah, he was, I think he may have been in two, playing two, you know, like sometimes like seasons later. So I'm like, okay, well, in a weird way, you have like tangentially or whatever, you have gay royalty because he was in the Golden Girls. Right, he yeah. dated, uh, I, I remember his character was dating um, Dorothy. Sophia kept like inserting herself and hanging out with them. And he was like, okay, I love dating you, Dorothy. I don't want to date your mother. Like, oh my God, that's I, hilarious. I just remember like, Every time I see him, I'm like, oh, he should have stayed with Dorothy. He wouldn't have died here. He wouldn't have died. He would have just <laughs> stayed in Florida. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if Golden Girls came after this, because this is like 84, 85, right? Yeah. And Golden yeah. Girls was, well, ran through the 80s. So I, I I don't know. I mean, Poltergeist, he would have done Poltergeist before this. So that yes. would have been, I think, 82 or I think so. Don't forget, 81. he's in Mulholland Drive as well. He's like verified yes. cult icon. But I love great actor that yeah. here today, thanks to Pablo, we've also declared James Karen a gay icon as well. Because who saw it coming only here on Midnight Mass? Could we? <laughs> 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 Loved it. No, but he's such a good actor and he totally like goes melodramatic to the point where he's kind of annoying at times. And I love it. I love it. Is yeah. He's- so good. I saw an interview a while back with Brian Peck, who plays Scuzz. And this was his first movie. And he was basically just being put out for the nerd role. And I guess that's all he was being put out for at the time. His agent only ever saw him as the nerd. And so I forget mm-hmm. the actor's name who played the more nerdy guy. But, you know, he didn't John get Philbin. it. Oh, yes. I think you're right. Very good. And uh, who's also very handsome. Um, oh, yeah. I was like, he's a nerd. He's fucking hot <laughs> right yeah you're the nerd right it's like one of those things like every time he sees him i like immediately grab my ankles i'm like okay <laughs> hey, right. yeah exactly so brian peck asked his agent like well i'm gonna go out for one of the punk rockers and the agent's like give me a break they want you you know they want people who wear mohawks and you know there's no way you'll ever get it well he of course he got it because it's called acting and he went in and he did and he nailed it but he so tells good. he tells the story of being on the set and apparently they were in that you know, building where all of the medical equipment is being stored. They're shooting downstairs, you know, the scenes where James Karen and like he's training Freddie and the dog, the dog comes to life, (laughs) you know, uh, model and all that. And Brian Peck said that he and the other actors above them, a floor above, could hear James Karen going ballistic and literally were looking at each other like, what? the fuck movie are we in? Like they could not believe what he was doing down there. They could hear the screaming like over and over again. And I just love that story because I love that the punk rockers are sitting upstairs going, 
what movie are we in? You know, and it's like James Karen setting the tone, right? But go with me for a second on this, because this is something we never, ever talk about when it comes to horror. And I think it really needs to be addressed. When you look as far back as someone like Vincent Price, Vincent Price understood bringing flamboyance to fright. Yes, she did. If you look at any Donald Pleasance performance, especially those later Dr. Loomis things, he is delivering histrionics. Yes, she did. James Karen is like at 11 here. And there's this thing when we think about scream queens that we only prescribe it to women and specific kinds of performances. But I would argue Vincent Price, Donald Pleasance, James Karen, what they're doing, the histrionics, the flamboyance of these roles is an understanding of, of the material that allows them to kind of be scream queens too. Yeah, like camp and like high drama and you know, all that stuff goes so well with horror, you know. Look at Freddy Krueger, that whole character. You know, like that's what really... There might be such a thing when you look at Freddy as too much camp, you know. <laughs> <laughs> too much at the time. But no, I Don't get me started. I'm, yeah. I'm a huge Freddy fan, but there was a point where it was kind of like, okay, let's rein it in a little bit. Um, yeah, you're, you're like, am I homophobic? Like, yeah. what? I'm telling him to rein it in. It, it almost stops being camp because it's too yeah. self-aware and it's not walking that line. And Michael and I on our Dragula episode talk about this. Is like, great camp actually has to have some restraint around it mm-hmm. or it stops kind of being camp. It just, it becomes something else. It becomes exhausting, I can imagine. It is, ex- yeah, exactly. The comedy just says, doesn't work as well. And and yeah. this, this movie, I think, is just such a great example of a movie that really walks the line. And we now, we know, and we've discussed how the writer of this movie was a very successful writer. Toby Hooper was supposed to direct this film, yeah. ended up not directing it. And so Dan O'Bannon got to step in and direct it. And I think we all agree that one of the great shames is that we didn't get to see more movies from Dan O'Bannon over the years because there is something so special about every little element of the movie. And you have to credit the director, especially when that person wrote the movie. Like you have to credit that person with really understanding that this was their vision and pulling it together so well. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about is the writing, because Mm -hmm. I actually think another part of what makes this movie so special is I love the conceit. I actually think it's so bizarre, you know, and I'm just wondering, what do you think of, you know, this is in many ways more of a sequel to Night of the Living Dead than any of the George Romero movies, you know? Yeah. Um, Because it it, it directly references what happened in Night of the Living Dead. And actually it's supposed to literally be the zombies from Night of the Living Dead, right? Yeah. You know, in those tanks. Um, So what do you think of the whole conceit that gets us to this place of horror? I think it's incredibly smart. You know, and like, I think you and I had kind of talked a little bit about, did this movie age well? And I think kind of dealing with that and making that kind of the focal point and that where everything is like a reference of is why it kind of both lasts, outlasts like the 80s, you know, with everything else being such like a snap shot into like this era but i i think it's wonderful i was a dumb kid when i first watched it and i was like i knew zombies were real like i totally (laughs) was like oh my god it's based on a true story and they're saying that this yeah oh i forgot about the title at the beginning yeah we haven't even talked about that you're right there's a whole title card at the beginning that just says that the whole thing is real that's just so it's simple but it's lovely that does kind of to me remind me a little of like the texas chainsaw massacre it's totally not like this whole long thing with someone talking but it does have a little of that feel so i remember hearing that they wanted toby cooper in it so i was like is this 
the one thing that he like lent to it. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I love that. I think it's a, a really smart decision to reference a movie that is so iconic. And by this time, like, it's like a touchstone, like when it comes to horror, when it comes to film in general, like uh, The Night of the Living Dead. Right. So to to use that is, I guess, like a love letter. Like you, you can really see how their heart and soul is into it. Do you know, Michael? Because there's a whole story there about- Okay, so maybe you can speak to that because I did not know this, but I think it's fascinating because it's about the fact that Night of the Living Dead was shared by two people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, go ahead and tell the story for the listeners that don't know. Yeah, so what happened was uh, the original Night of the Living Dead, as we all know, was directed by George A. Romero, but it was co-written by George Romero and a man named John Russo, who was also a novelist. And they were both indie filmmakers working together in Pittsburgh. And as tends to happen with relationships, sometimes uh, their creative partnership dissolved. And in doing so, uh, Russo retained the rights to anything that had the Living Dead name, but mm-hmm. it also allowed Romero to go forth and make his own sequels. They just couldn't be called. It couldn't be Dawn of the Living Dead. It just was Dawn of the Dead. So Romero goes off and does what Romero does. And we know historically that, you know, continues to alter the course of, of zombies forever. John Russo writes a book called Return of the Living Dead, which was more of a direct sequel. O'Bannon gets the rights to that. Then it starts as they script becoming a little farther afield, a little far, a little farther mm-hmm. afield, and becomes a foundational meta horror movie in the process, and becomes what we get. Uh, so I'm glad that you asked about that, Peaches, because it leads to a question that I wanted to ask Pablo. Because you know you mentioned how this, in many ways, is a a, a more direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead than even Romero's own films. But as we know, this movie then spawns a franchise of its own. And Pablo, what are your thoughts on any of the uh, sequels, if you've seen them or like them at all? I saw them like kind of when I was young. I do remember liking them, but they haven't. Stood out to me the way mm-hmm. this movie does. And this movie really is like, like, let's be honest, like no one was really talking about zombies eating brains before this film. Right. Like this film really changed a lot of that. It was like super important. There, there's a reason. Um, I did like part two, just because there were like younger actors, like tween age actors involved so i remember as a kid being like cool i'm gonna go find zombies because (laughs) if he could fight them in the movie this is cake like i took karate um (laughs) so like i i I do remember thinking that but as i've gotten older those haven't really stood out to me as something to watch i think one time i may have put the part three on and i unfortunately fell asleep i don't know if i should say that there's like an effortless fun in this film that I, I really enjoy, but I do bump into the series, I guess. I actually told Michael uh, that I was going to rewatch the sequels because I hadn't seen them in years. And uh, Return of the Living Dead, I've watched over and over and over and over again. And I have this fear sometimes when I sit down to rewatch a movie for the podcast specifically, because I know that we're going to talk about the movie and maybe a deeper way. We're going to look at things. And Michael and I don't shy away from acknowledging things when they're problematic or, or rub us the wrong way. Yeah. You know, we'll we'll address it head on. And sometimes 
it's a bummer, quite frankly, because this thing that you've held near and dear to your heart, like you realize later, like, fuck, I, I wasn't even aware enough, you know, socially to realize like how offensive that is. We often talk about, you know, Long Duck Dong and 16 Candles and sort of yeah. mm-hmm. the kind of comedy that was so accepted in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s and be, and before, of course. Um, and of course, when we, you know, did Anti-Mame, there was a lot to talk about there. But I was nervous watching Return of the Living Dead because I thought, oh God, what do I what do I not remember? What have I blocked? And I have to say, it really, in many ways, is progressive for what it is. Yeah. And really, uh, it's just so great because th- this is actually a movie that came out when it did with the kind of characters it has and manages to not have um, a fag line or, you know, a, a, a yeah. horrible racial joke, you know, the, the sort of sexism or misogyny that's built into it is actually not at all what you would think it would be at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just delicious and, and really lovely. Yeah. But I was saying to Michael, I don't remember the sequels as well. So I'm going to rewatch those. And, yeah. you know, Michael said, well, you don't need to, you can... You can skip them. Yeah. <laughs> the strength of this film is like in the choices, right? The the choices that they made of how to write in any of the comedy. It's not about like the punchlines that were popular around the time. Like one of the things that I think makes comedy so hard in aging is once you've heard that punchline, it like loses its effect. Right. And um, what is funny at one point isn't necessarily funny anymore. And this, instead of like, and like with horror too, like, you know, we're no longer afraid of like diseased blood, like how they were in the 80s. So that may not always translate into like, you know, this is scary anymore, but it just, in talking, like going going back to like talking, like the book and the writing and referencing the the Night of the Living Dead, I think that was actually a really smart choice. Yeah. Maybe it was like unintentional, like for them to think like, we want to make sure that this translates well into 2022, but it was a really smart choice for them to do that because then that just means that all the references and everything isn't stuck in a time and it makes it hard to move past. Regarding the sequels, and as I, as Peach has pointed out, I, I told her, you know, she could probably take or leave them. I think my, my issue with these is that uh, with the those sequels is that it's hard to catch lightning in a bottle twice, especially mm-hmm. with something that that walks that meta line so much that this movie does. There's such smart humor, but such good horror. And, uh, you know, every movie is a miracle. And I praise anybody who gets one made. I, I think their part two has a lot of fans. I think that Return of the Living Dead part three actually works better because it does not try to be the original movie. It does. It sets mm. up this like Romeo and Juliet story with a zombie girl and a boy that I I think is at least different enough that I'm like, all right, I'll check into that. But it's hard. It's hard. And and we see this with every franchise. It's sort of, they get locked in, whether it's a, you know, a a, a killer in the woods, a killer in your dreams, zombies, where it hits a point where you either have to be daring enough to jump the shark a little bit or stay within the formula. And either way, you're going to lose audience somewhere along the way because you can't recreate magic. You can just filter into another kind of magic. I guess. Exactly. Which, I mean, if, if, if you look at this film as like Night of the Living Dead Part 2, holy shit, they like 
they made an amazing film. Right. But it was like, it's such a tone shift, right? Like everything is so vastly different that like maybe it set them up. Well, that makes the idea of Toby Hooper even more interesting mm-hmm. because it's exactly what he did with his own masterpiece, right? So he, he if you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Uh, I would say there's a lot of uh, synergy between Night of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead. You really have this this movie that is a sequel, but it's in this wildly different, colorful. It's just just different. And so, huh, that is really interesting. But as much as I love Toby Hooper, and Lord knows I do, and we've talked about it on this podcast so many times, I I love, Mm -hmm. love, love Toby Hooper. And, you know, I think... Uh, eventually we'll do the Poltergeist episode that we absolutely must do because Poltergeist is completely uh, in my top five for sure. Um, He, I think, doesn't get enough credit for that film because of all the controversy. But I'm so glad that Dan O'Bannon got to direct this movie because it is just so special. And there's something so unique about this film. And it is all of the elements that we've discussed. It's the performers, the writing, he wrote it. He directed it. The music is incredible. The soundtrack is incredible. The synth score yeah. is incredible. The special effects makeup are incredible. The practical effects, the the performances of of the creatures like Tarman, even the the little person without legs who only has that one little moment. Oh my god, is that terrifying. is terrifying. You know? <laughs> yeah, and even the way that they use like the music, for example, like with all the bands yeah. and all that stuff, like it really is points of levity right like once that yeah once the party time song comes on it's just like (laughs) the skeleton with eyes opening up but then when they use the synth stuff it's actually really terrifying there's a lot of like really terrifying things i love it like what a way to tell the story that just takes you on a roller coaster this is a question probably never gonna get to ask another guest unless you join us again so in the event of a zombie apocalypse what's the best workout if we want to survive. Oh, easy. Okay, (laughs) let me go into it. First and foremost, what you need to be doing, so with zombie apocalypse, you're getting attacked, right? So if you have to fight, you have to learn how to do any rotational chops and rotational lifts because you have to swing something and it's much better to swing a bat or an ax or a long thing of wood than it is your fist. So always think rotational chops. You have to build that power, then harness it from the ground, build up your glutes so that you can explode out. Perfect. But also a number one, run. Endurance. Just build up your, your, your endurance. One of the things that I tell my clients all the time, and I talk about a lot, is the importance of cardio. You could, like, yeah, like lifting weights makes you strong, does all these things, but cardio is actually what helps with your heart, which then makes it easier for your muscles. If it pumps better, gets you better cardiovascular strength, it's easier for the blood and oxygen to go to your muscles. So you recover faster. Cardio is amazing. So cardio and any rotational chops, which are great. Trust me on this. Like, well, clearly I will survive. <laughs> you will survive. I'm making that, that. That's what I'm doing. I'm making sure that you survive. Yes, I've been gains. making gains. Ooh. I'm talking about gains at the gym. Okay. Um, but yes, as I knew you would be, are a fantastic yes. um, guest of the podcast, oh, and we're so glad to have you. Where can our followers? 
are especially the perverts who just want to, <laughs> you know, exploit you for your fantastic physique. Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? How can they listen to your podcast? So for me personally, I'm on Instagram at the Exorcist SF. That's T-H-E-A-X-E-R-C-I-S-T-S-F. And my podcast that I co-host with Paul, who's awesome, um, is Scared Game. And we are on wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Amazon, I think has podcasts, um, Spotify. Yeah. And we're on Instagram at Scared Gay Podcast. Great. And we we just did, I know you guys are going to hate us. We just did a Serbian film. Oh, rough. Yeah. This is why there needs to be multiple podcasts like this, because you know what? If you want to go (laughs) do a deep dive and hear people celebrate, I guess, or discuss. See, we celebrate movies, which I think with a a Serbian film, it would be a tough movie for me to celebrate. I could talk about it, but I don't know that I'd want to celebrate it. Yeah. Um, If you want to hear two big queens talk about a Serbian film. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we don't always like every film like right you know and yeah, we uh, only do movies we like that is that is yeah. true of us that is true yeah and, that, and that's great yeah you guys have a great podcast oh <laughs> I love thank, it. You. Well, thank you we appreciate that you well great. you've been a wonderful guest and um come back another time we'd love to have you and and also if if any of you want to see pablo on stage in a peaches show drag becomes her he'll be returning to the midnight mass peaches christ stage at the castor theater on august 27th I'm so, excited. Oh, and I saw, Pablo, that you got tickets to All About Evil in, oh, yeah. in San Francisco. So you'll be seeing uh, Michael and I, obviously, there. And um, yep. you and Michael need to meet in person. We'll all take a photo together. How about I love that? Yes. Perfect. I'm excited. All right. Well, thank, you, thank you. Thank you. And that was our interview with the amazing Pablo Escobar. You know, Peaches, I, of course, love Pablo's enthusiasm for horror films and his love of this movie. But I couldn't pass up the chance to ask him about what kind of exercises to do to survive a zombie apocalypse. Because, frankly, when am I going to get that opportunity again? Well, also, I love that he didn't miss a beat. And like it was like, this is something he's been waiting for someone to ask him for years. And I don't know if I mentioned it yet, but that is his real name, Pablo Escobar. Oh, yeah, you, you might have brought it up a time or two. <laughs> <laughs> I am fascinated by it, as you know. Um, this episode has been so special because not only did I get to celebrate one of my all-time favorite movies, but I got to have two really good friends of mine on that that I really enjoy. Not that I don't enjoy all of our guests, I do, but like yeah. some of the guests I don't actually know or they're friends of yours or, you know, they're from the movies or whatever. But these are two people who this felt like, uh, you know, like, the four of us got to rent a, a VHS we love and, you know, pop some popcorn and settle in to a great old movie and then enjoy it and all agree that it's just as good, if not better, than we remembered it. I think you're right. And I absolutely agree. I love every episode that we've done and I value all of the conversations we've had. I, I could never pick a favorite, but there are episodes that do feel like slumber parties. Like, you know, and you can even tell when you and I are sort of slap happy doing our our interstitials here because we're having such a good time. It's exactly that. It's like we rented Return of the Living Dead with two people who love it and we're just having a good time. And I'm so glad that this episode was the party 
that this punk rock movie deserves. Yes. And you know, another thing that I thought about while re-engaging with my love affair is this is one of those movies because of the nostalgia phase that that's been so popular and hasn't really let up due to the success of things like Stranger Things. The 80s, obviously, I was there. I lived it. This movie is the real deal. And you don't need to see a new piece of work about the 80s or or that takes place in the 80s when you can watch Return of the Living Dead. Like, this is a movie that is so 80s, and it was made in the 80s, and it's reflective of the time it came out, that I hope they don't remake it. Um, yeah. Because I could see it, and I bet, I bet, as you know, I bet there's a project already, you know, somewhere, someone is talking about remaking Return of the Living Dead, and I just hope they don't. And I especially hope they don't set it in the 80s, if they do, because it's unnecessary. You will not top this soundtrack. You will not top these costumes or performances. You cannot. The movie is perfect. Leave it alone. When we talked uh, about other zombie movies, when we covered Night of the Living Dead, of course, this movie was brought up. But I think the thing with making a successful zombie movie is not treading back into territory that we've already seen, but it's rather finding new ways to explore this concept. That's what makes Return of the Living Dead work. It's what makes Shaun of the Dead work. It's a faceless horde And yes, that seems like there's only so many things you can do with it. But then you turn around and watch something like Anna and the Apocalypse, which came out a couple years ago, which is a Christmas zombie movie that really kind of did something that I'd never seen before. The most punk rock thing you can do with zombies is something new. Don't read. I never saw that movie. Oh, I think you would like it. Well, I do like a movie called Dead Snow. Have you seen that? It's the Nazi zombies, yes, right? It's, yeah. it's Nazis who thaw and they they, <laughs> they have been, um, you know, in an icy, I guess, German or Austrian mountainside and, you know, the mountain that melts or whatever. And I remember thinking like that is fucking wild and crazy. Um, so I do think that there are ways to continue to reinvent this genre, to continue to make zombie movies interesting to do something new and return of the living dead is one of those sort of groundbreaking movies that dared to you know take chances and and do things a different way and introduce new ideas and and look at us now everyone everyone says brains yes and speaking of groundbreaking things that decided to take things uh in and handle things a different way as of the time of this recording you probably just saw peaches and i at the chainsaw awards on uh shutter and we had a great time presenting so thank you for tuning in if you did also as you know we have a couple screenings coming up for the all about evil reunion tour the the relaunch uh the blu-ray celebration peaches do you want to lay some info on us tickets are now on sale for the san francisco show that's taking place at the victoria theater both michael and i will be in attendance with members of the cast and members of the crew and uh there will be performances and a q a moderated by michael and um we will have blu-ray the blu-rays there it's going to be a big to do it's back where it was shot where it takes place at the victoria theater on june 11th those tickets are at peaches Christ.com. As of this recording, I don't know where to buy tickets yet. Uh, they're working on it. But the Severin screening in Los Angeles is happening on June 9th at the Los Feliz 3. So that's coming soon. And you should be able to Google it by the time this comes out and find out where tickets are or just message me and I'll let you know. And we're also doing a signing 
at Dark Delicacies in Burbank. So me and a bunch of the cast and uh, I think Darren Stein and some other people will be at Dark Delicacies in Burbank on Sunday the 12th doing a signing. And then finally on Friday, June 24th, we will be at Carla Rossi's Queer Horror at the Hollywood Theater. And that will be an All About Evil tribute show that Carla Rossi is producing. And I'm going to be there as a guest, as Peaches. And uh, yeah, this is just uh, such a such a treat. And by the time this episode comes out, it will have been announced, because they're announcing it next week, Michael, that this film is premiering on Shudder in mid-June. And, and Shudder has hopefully already announced, because they told me they're announcing uh, next week. So by the time this comes out, um, we'll be premiering on Shudder in mid June or maybe early June. I'm not sure, but it's coming to Shutter in June. Um, yeah. So there's a Blu-ray. It's coming to Shutter. It'll also be on Amazon and iTunes. And uh, and Michael and I are doing these screenings. So it's a real thrill. Also, part of the Blu-ray is a booklet that is the diaries that Michael wrote about our All About Evil Tour de Fierce. And so this booklet is a part of this Blu-ray release, which is so amazing, Michael, that this, this documentation that you had the, the smart foresight to create back when we did the tour is now being printed in a booklet. I can't believe it. Yeah, it was really exciting to revisit all of those entries because, you know, at the time we would we would publish them on peacheschrist.com, but the website has changed so much over the years that that section of the site is now defunct. And um, as with a lot of writing that, that we do in the world, some of it just disappears. And so when this came up, I was like, God, I hope I still have it. And when I, I, I found all the files and was reading through, it was like an instant flood of memories. And there's some really unique and wild stuff that happened on the tour. But of course, I'm not going to tell you here. You have to buy the Blu-ray and read about it. And the Blu-ray comes with a CD. It's like It comes with a booklet, a CD, and all, and the featurette and all this stuff. So I, as the creator who made a movie, like so many of the movies we talk about on the podcast over 10 years ago, the fact that people are still interested in it today is just the greatest gift and so lovely. And so thank you for being part of it. And um yeah, I'm excited. And the the last thing that we'll mention is just to join our Patreon, because if you want to get more intimate with us, if you want peaches harassing you on the internet and being included and invited to in-person Zoom meetings and, and the like, plus other stuff that we share, uh, join our Patreon and you'll help support the continuation of the Midnight Mass podcast. And believe me, Peach is harassing you on a daily basis is a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, we will have like some extra herpes. Return of the Living Dead goodies to share with you. I'm not sure what those are yet, but you're just going to have to tune in and see. And in the meantime, we're just going to head back to this graveyard and do some tombstone dancing peaches. Yeah, I mean, if you know to take off all of your clothes before you get up on a tombstone and dance in the rain, well, then you too might be one of the children of the pop for now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. 
The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.